previously on Prachat 9. Truckers, or if it was a Simon and Garfunkel song, the Gnomewood Bounders. Thousands of tiny gnomes who live under the floorboards of a large department store. Their whole world is to be demolished. It's up to Masklin, one of the outside gnomes, to devise a daring escape plan. I can't believe that I did not hear his name as Masculine. Teach more people to read, including women. Stealing a lorry and going outside the store <laughs> is one thing. Well, can't be done, but <laughs> we'll do it anyway. Stop, I'm going to need a whole lot of stop. The gnomes have found somewhere to live. And it rhymes with lorry. But Masklin's not happy because he feels like this is just another temporary solution and it's sort of the end of the story for now, but it can't be the end of the story. I'm Ben McKenzie. And welcome to Pratt Chat, the monthly Terry Pratchett book club podcast. Each month we discuss one of Terry Pratchett's books with a special guest. This month we're talking about Diggers, which is arguably Terry Pratchett's dirtiest book. And our guest is award-winning author Marley Jane Ward. Welcome, Marley. Hi. Marley, this this is your first time on Pratt Chat. And just quietly, this is my first Terry Pratchett book. That's not entirely true, is it? Um, I've also read Good Omens. Mm. Yeah. Very on theme for you, seeing as you're now doing a podcast about the end of the world very, in fiction. Very mm-hmm. true. How did you come to find Good Omens, though? Um, because I'm a Neil Gaiman fan. Ah. So someone recommended it to me when I was back at uni and um, thoroughly enjoyed it. So I don't know why it took me so long to get to Terry Pratchett on his own. See, it's yeah. like the same for me, like in opposite. Like I really like Terry Pratchett and I haven't quite delved down the Neil Gaiman route properly yet, mm. except for the odd dabbling. So meeting in the middle it's like when people cross promote podcasts on each other's podcasts (laughs) it helps you get into the other's work um how did you get into neil gaiman then a friend of mine once again at uni same friend who gave me good omens uh he sadly passed away uh last year he recommended american gods and it was uni holidays and so i lied in bed for two days reading american gods in one go I felt like I was going to get bed sores, yeah. so I had to keep shifting my body from one side to another, um, but I was fully immersed in that world, and that's sort of my first taste of Neil Gaiman, and then I read Good Omen sort of quite quickly after that. And that'd be quite the compelling blurb to have on the front of your book, like, this book was so good, I almost got bed sores reading it. <laughs> Well, that's. I, I can only hope that we get a review like that now. Someone, someone's getting bed sores because they're just listening to the back catalogue of Pratchett. Don't get bed sores, no, please. Shift your weight. Shift around. Um, get up if you can. If you can't, just get someone to turn you regularly. Mm. But we are here to talk about Diggers, the second book in the Book of Gnome series, or the Bromeliad, as it is um, affectionately known. Although not in the edition that I have. It's never referred to as the Bromeliad there. Apparently the English editor didn't like that title for the series and refused to use it. So it only appears in print in the American editions. At first it confused me, Mm. but then it 
as the book progressed, it made sense. Yeah, and there's no mention of it at all, at all in the first one. No. Um, so it makes no <laughs> it makes no sense if you're just reading the first one. Why is this book one of the bromeliads? There's no bromeliads. It's weird. But it's kind of beautifully metaphorical once you get there, like about halfway through the series. But I found it really strange, that whole thing with the, like the frog that lives in the flower on top of the bromeliad for its entire life, because it's kind of a lot like a Chinese idiom about the frog that lives at the bottom of a well, and that's its own only realm of experience. And I'm like, this is a lot more charming version of it, a frog that lives in a flower on top of a thing and a beautiful thing rather than at the bottom of a well. Which is kind of a sad story, really, if that's your only experience of life. Mm. Yeah. But if you were going to be the frog at the bottom of the well versus the frog in the flower, I guess I would choose the flower one, depending on how nice the well was. You'd have a nicer view. But it depends on what's above your well, isn't it? If it was a well-maintained well? As long as there's no, you know, like weird little girls with... Long hair. Long, stringy black Long, hair. stringy black hair who walk really weirdly, like as long as they're not down there with you. <laughs> that would probably actually make your well experience much more exciting. <laughs> yeah. Do you think if you were down there too long, you'd start to feel unwell? Oh. Mm. I should leave the puns to you, Liz. Uh, but before we get started <laughs> on the discussion, it is our tradition to read the blurb. Marley, would you like to do the honours? And Grimace said, we have two choices. We can run or we hide. And they said, which shall we do? She said, we shall fight. A bright new dawn is just around the corner for thousands of tiny gnomes when they move into the ruined buildings of an abandoned quarry. Or is it? Soon strange things start to happen, like the tops of puddles growing hard and cold and the water coming down from the sky in frozen bits. Then humans appear and they really mess everything up. The quarry is to be reopened and the gnomes must fight to defend their new home. But how long will they be able to keep the humans at bay, even with the help of the monster Jacob? Just from hearing that, they're always moving around these gnomes. Like, I know it's like they're nomadic, so that's kind of like a thing about them moving around. So the name ties in with that. But it's also like gnomes, new homes, and ohms. I'm sure it's not deliberate, but it's just very tidy. You've like, you've really thought about that. You've gone deep. In that, yeah. In that last 30 seconds, I really you've had a moment. You've analyzed this deeply. Yeah, but quite quickly. <laughs> Well, that's good. Well, no, I like that though. They don't want to be nomadic. Although, I mean, the, the whole thing about them, as we find out in this book, uh, well, we find out in the first book, that they, you know, are exploring the universe in spaceships means that they're at least explorers. But these gnomes really want to just try and find a place to survive and, and live. Um, well, at, at least that's what most of them want. But the first part of the book is really about them kind of figuring that out. And after they've left the store in truckers and now that they've arrived in the quarry, I really like this first part of the book where you find out how they've been getting on and, and what's been going on in gnome society. Yeah, it's broken down some of the barriers. And so it used to be divided into store things, but now it's like the drivers versus the passengers. And there's always, yeah. it says about them liking hierarchy and they've got a council and it seems like things are looking kind of good, but not not utopia good. Things are definitely getting better for the female persuasion of mm-hmm. gnomes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in the first few pages of the book, I stumbled across the um, idea that women are considered less than mm-hmm. and I was like, hold on a second. Um, but it was only after a little while that I, f- I started to get kind of. Why? Why, yeah, and what Pratchett was doing with that. Yeah, about their brains overheating if they read too much and that's why they were prevented from it before. But, yeah, it is actually progressing very well for the women gnomes here. It is that thing where he's presenting it sort of 
ironically. Yeah, of course. You know, as this is what the gnomes think, and we all know that that's rubbish, but it's quite subtle at the start and you're mm. not quite sure. <laughs> like, is he saying this is just normal or this seems weird? Yeah, so I have to admit I read these out of order. So I read this one first. And so it's probably not the best way to do it, but I never do things in the normal way. So <laughs> as is my way. So at first I was like, oh, I was in the bath reading it and I went to to market and I couldn't. So I thought, oh, I have to remember that that bit. And then it started going a little bit further into it. And I was like, oh, he's doing something clever here. Mm. And I think that that was something that I'd forgotten from Good Omens is just how sharp and clever he is. Mm. Uh, it was a long time ago. It was probably 14 years, 13 years ago that I read yeah. Good Omens. So I had forgotten just how on it he is. You just um, have a lot of faith in your readers as well to sort of put that out there, leave it for a while, and then come back and swing it around. Yeah. Mm, yeah. And I, I think he's sort of putting a lot of faith in you to remember what has come before and how those store gnomes have been confronted with these new ideas from the outdoors gnomes um, and have to rethink things. Um, but even then, you know, there, there was a real sense in truckers that some of the, particularly the the sort of higher up nobility, a lot of the, the you know, the noble ladies of the gnome court were like, oh, yeah, well, those rules don't really apply to me, you know. Like, it's, they, and, and then when, they're, when Grimmer learns to read and they're sort of asking her pointed questions about, did your brain explode? <laughs> interesting, interesting. Yeah, so it's nice to see that move on. And the whole idea too that they've only been in the quarry for, I think it's about a year. Is it a year? Six months. Six months. Yeah, it's less than a year because they've not experienced winter before. That's mm. right. That's a long time for gnomes. So mm. there's already been a new generation of gnomes born and, and growing up. Heard stories about the worry and the drive. Yeah. Well, they were traveling in the back and they were so young that they don't really remember. Yeah. They just have sort of that vague memory that kind of turns things mythic mm. when you have a memory from when you were that young that's so large. Because mm. that's like five years worth of time for gnomes. It's weird to think of like a whole generation of stuff happening in that shorter space of time. Because do it to do a maths, they said that one night is like three days to them, which means that a 24-hour period would be like six days. Yeah, mm. at least. So six times is fast. So six months is like 36 months, which is... Three years. Yeah. Yeah. I think mean, that's... Yeah, yeah. That's some really good on-the-fly maths. Yeah, and they only live Thank for you. a... Well, the the oldest gnomes live for maybe ten years, I think. Like ten's an aspirational age. Yeah, so they they live like they're like I think they develop faster as well. So like if they if they did live on a normal human time scale, they would probably grow up and and mature and then die like in a much shorter period than humans do as well. Though like, gnomes tend to have it quite bad, so gnomes are always being picked off, and they don't quite grasp the concept of somebody dying of old age what oh, yeah. was the line yeah oh, like for yeah. old tara like just dying of nothing or like of being alive By, yeah. dying of being alive too long and he yeah, that was a bit sad at the start because you just get that line where it's like <laughs> i mean nothing ate him first or ran him over or anything <laughs> yeah yeah the idea that you could die simply of not being alive anymore was a new one to them yeah. And the running out of old Torah, I think, was, yeah, it's, he just gets a line. I'm, I'm really worried they're going to do that to Leia in the new Star Wars, that she's going to mm. die off screen. No, no, they have said they're going to, she's going to be on screen. They're not going to do any CGI. They're going to use unused footage from the first two films. Okay. Which, uh, first two 
new trilogy films. See, I was really worried that she was going to get the, oh, it's so sad. It happened in between movies. No, I, I think they'll they'll figure out something. Yeah, I better. It's not a Star Wars podcast. <laughs> but uh, did you like The Last Jedi? I did really like it. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I, um, I'm not sure I loved what I assume was throwing shade at Hong Kong, but... Um, <laughs> But yeah. it was enjoyable. Interesting. I, 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 I thought it was just throwing shade at casinos. Anyway, we're, or Las Vegas. But we're, we're going off we're going off track. Yeah, so Old Torrent got written out. It was a bit like, yeah, let's hope they don't do that. And everything's going okay, but unfortunately winter is coming, mm. which is what was alluded to in the blurb. <laughs> yes. I feel like you could do a whole series of illustrations like mashing up the gnomes and characters from Game of Thrones. I think that would be kind of cool. Uh, and you'd have masculine like his, I don't know, is masculine Jon Snow? Probably. He kind of is. Yeah. I guess. Or maybe, maybe, um, Dorcas is Jon Snow. Oh. Uh, mm. Dorcas is like that guy in King's Landing who's the spider? like. Spider? No, no, the other one who like makes stuff. Oh, yeah, that guy. Yeah, yeah. I can't remember. Oh, I don't know. I don't think anybody. Yeah. Knows. Again, it's, it's not a Game of Thrones podcast. But also, it would be really good if there was a bunch of Christmas cards of this because the store gnomes know about winter through Christmas cards. So they keep going, oh, and there's robins, aren't there? <laughs> I loved the robins thing. Like, oh, will there be robins? And they became more and more sinister as the book went along. It's kind and of like- you've, you've got to wonder what exactly made the robins or the idea of robins so sinister in Christmas cards. I guess like they're big and beady. Like they're just they're always looking but at you. Think but think that look- in Christmas cards the robins would be pleasant. So I find it really interesting that they've turned the robins into something ominous. Was it Granny Morky who like turned the tide on robins? Because they mentioned the robins and she's like they make good eating, and then <laughs> it just became like a weird thing. Because it seemed like they were positive about them a little bit. Everything she says turns things around. Oh, I love it. Um, There was a line that I really loved where um, they were talking about how she likes to cheer people up. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And and it's it's a good idea to get cheerful so she stops trying to cheer you up. Yeah, everything she says is gold. She's an aspirational old lady. She is. The other thing actually at the start, and this sort of happens while they're sort of realising that winter is on the way, he cuts to the bit of paper flying towards the quarry several times like it's going to be a big deal and I, I i don't know that felt like when i was reading it i was like i remember this and i know why this bit of paper is important but is it, is this overegging it a bit but isn't it the first mention of grandson 39 mm. yeah that's true that's true it's where they get the idea and they get the idea in this book and then they head off but yeah to me it's tapping into the whole religion versus what you can see debate that mm. sort of comes through the whole book because he isn't coming down strongly on the side of atheism. It is actually quite a, a book that's exploring our faith versus... versus Religion. Yeah. It ends up being a literal, or can be viewed as a sign from Arnold Brothers, the deity, because it's about it. So it kind of, I felt like that portentous sort of thing. Like even when jumping ahead, um, evil preacher guy disappears or dies, like mm. you don't, we as the reader don't find out what happens to him. So it still leaves that question of, is there something else going on? And the gnomes to comfort themselves, prefer to believe that he he does somehow manage to live out his life. Like in the Bible, um, some of the prophets do just get zapped away. Like they just disappear and you don't know what happened to them. And I feel like there was the opportunity to give readers like, oh, yes, he definitely got squished, but the gnomes think this. But it's a deliberate choice 
to not tell readers either way. So it's tapping into that one of the key themes yeah. of the books. Of having faith. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they do talk about things like, you know, fate and destiny as well. And there's a great bit where one of them says density instead of destiny. And so I'm George like, McFly. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but we should probably go back in time and um, get back to the sign going up. Yes, because a human visits the quarry and puts up a sign on the fence to say, that um, the quarry is going to be reopened, which causes a lot of confusion among the gnomes who are like, it's open already. It's <laughs> Look, a quarry. There's, there's all this space here. <laughs> and the store, I love the repeated references how the store gnomes are still getting used to the idea that there's nothing because hmm. they've lived their whole lives inside. So they're used to there being a roof. And Ooh. now the quarry forms a kind of a roof, but when they're outside, they're like, oh, I don't like this. To jump forward again, later on in the book, he's talking about the wind blowing and he's like, the air conditioning is blowing from yeah. from this direction. Um, and somebody, I believe it's Grimma, interrupts him and says, the wind. Yeah, it, We call it wind. Yeah. yeah, I made a list of all the, um, the weird beliefs they have that are logical but not quite. Like oh, in the, yeah. But yeah, like in the previous book, how is like road works ahead the road didn't work at all it was full of holes yeah sorry <laughs> that was great <laughs> yeah yeah and the difference between like knowing what all the words mean and knowing what the sentence means because they they I, I, look it's a bit confusing like i i i assume the gnomes have learned like they've ended up speaking some form of english so they have a grasp of nomenclature Ooh, what i really <laughs> <laughs> or homunculature. Oh, uh, what I really like is how they take everything so literally. It kind mm. of reminds me a little bit of Anya from Buffy in that she takes everything extremely literally. <laughs> and I find that quite hilarious. Yeah. Um, that's just me. No, that's fantastic, actually. I haven't is... thought about her for so long because then you get to the end thought and you're like, no. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's okay. Don't. Let's not go there. But the sign goes up. The and sign does go up. Corey's open. And so that's sort of like panic stations for everyone because they're like, oh, what does this mean for the future? And so it splits off the group into two different parts. There's the ones who are like, okay, because basically in this book, each of the main characters has their own view of what progress is, which I found really interesting because Masculine's idea of progress is let's listen to the thing and try and get back to the stars because that's his ultimate goal. Grimmer is interested in progress in like – Women can read. Let's try and build a new home, that kind of thing. Move away from the Arnold brothers' idea. Um, was it Nicodemus? Mm. His he just wants power, but I think he also believes that he just wants everyone to be religious to the point that where it might kill them all. But that's fine. That's righteous and he, good. He kind of reminded me of a Republican, <laughs> kind of keeping the status quo going regardless of the fact that the status quo no longer works, mm. um, and his blind sort of faith sort of leading him down this kind of scary path where he's putting all of the other gnomes in danger. Mm. And Dorcas is all about technology being the future. Let's learn about new things that way. And he's ex- he specifically says that he's excited, like he realizes he's ignorant about a lot more things, but it's a new bunch of things to be ignorant about. And I just found it really interesting that everyone has their own sort of long-term timeline mm. and they're all stretching in different directions. And to me, I was like, how is this all going to tie together yeah. at the end? And well, it won't really, but. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, but I do like that, um, that apart from Nicodemus, um, that, you know, Dorcas and Masklin and Grimmer's plans and hopes for the future, and they're not mutually exclusive. Like they can achieve all of those things together. And in fact, the, their plans that they have do will kind of bring them together to a point where hopefully they can do that. And it's, uh, and I think, you know, they're, and they're all held back by different things. Um, I mean, masculine, we talked in the last podcast about how his name sounds a bit like masculine, 
but he he has he's having that moment where he's been you know he's been in a society and in a culture that's sort of taught him how to be male and what that means and what his role is uh and grimmer is like quite rightly pointing out yeah but have you ever thought about what my role is because my role is kind of shit uh, and, and he's now questioning it and going, well, does that mean my role has to change? It reminds me of the scene where Grimma first describes the bromeliads and at the end of that it's this beautiful long run-on sentence that kind of speaks to her passion and maybe desperation, um, but the very end of that is, is, and then you want me to come and live with you in a hole and wash your socks. Like that's the future that she sees for herself as being the worst possible conclusion Mm -hmm. um going back to this backwards sort of view of women gnomes um and she knows that she's worth so much more um i believe that the next line is but i don't wear socks um but the sentiment remains and it all ties in very nicely with the whole electricity thing running through running through the the current of electricity running through the books because electricity was one of the main things that helped liberate women from households as well because mm. you weren't at home spending literally all day cleaning clothes a machine with, could with do that with the with the scrubbing mm. what is it the uh, the washboard yeah. Um, yeah so it gave you more time to actually be a person and not just a sand in from a machine so the the threat of the loss of electricity is actually quite like a a big dread through the whole thing as well so when mm. the humans ultimately cut that off the, cho- the choice of going to the barn in some ways i assume to grimmer is like going backwards as well yeah well because it feels like a bit also like going back into the store because mm. we're going back inside a building but a lesser building mm. a lesser building yeah back back to the stone age for them but yet the masses are, because things get bad the masses are happy to accept it as this promised land kind of thing they're like oh there'll be food there it'll be warm even though no one's really said that there's a, there's a bit of food there and it's it's not outside in the winter. Turnips. Turnips, yeah. Turnips. Turnip Nobody likes a turnip. Oh, I don't mind it. Nobody I likes I, a turnip. I, I don't really like turnips that much. Well, this is a turnip for the books. <laughs> They're okay. They're all right. Also, I find it interesting how Masculine kind of picks and chooses what of the of the new things he likes and doesn't like because there's the gender roles from the previous like life on the outside, but he wants to, he sort of proposes to Grimm and being like, oh, well, the, the store gnomes sort of get married while the abbot whispers words. And I kind of would like to do that. And mm. so like there's changes that he likes and there's changes that he doesn't like. And there's cherry picking the ones that tie in with what he already has. And there's like a good line about it. It's like about changing it's that he was all in favor of change. What he was dead against was things not staying the same. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. It kind of reminds me a little bit of a quote from The Stationery. Um, he didn't like the gnomes learning to read. It gave them ideas which wasn't good unless they were the right ideas. Yeah, yeah. And there's like, It's a constant theme in the book. Because if you think about it, this is a huge amount of change, in, particularly for the store gnomes, but also for you know masculine and the outdoor gnomes as well. Like It's just a massive change in the way their lives work and happening on a scale that is, like, I don't, you know, it's the equivalent experience for humans would be something like seeking asylum in another country. They're fleeing where they've lived their whole lives because it's no longer safe for them and going somewhere where they don't really know what it's going to be like, but they are hoping it just has to be better. And they end up, you know, basically and, in a camp outside. And that kind of goes to faith again. Mm. And the locals don't make them welcome. No. Yeah. But I look. I think the other thing, and I, I don't want to talk about masculine too much because you know he's he's about to leave the book. He's a blip in the book. But I do also really like him. 
the way he talks to the thing about his plans. Because once they read the newspaper, well, they, they recognize the name of grandson Richard, who is the descendant of... Um, uh, so grandson Richard, 39. Oh, mm. yes, I'm sorry. Grandson Richard, 39, uh, who clearly is modeled on Richard Branson, by the way. Oh, I missed that. Right. Obvious. Is, is oh, it, am he's... I wrong in thinking that? And there's that whole thing about globetrotting and they're trying to establish what globetrotting means. They're like... Running oh. on a ball <laughs> really <Yeah>. slowly. <laughs> which, which is interesting because, like, you know, Richard Branson is not like a third generation of like, he's, he's the entrepreneur who started his business. At least I think so. I don't it's know. a virgin business. It's a, it's. A, <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know he he's 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 named Richard. And he's he flies around the place and he's got all these crazy schemes. But also, um, you know, he's launching this satellite, and this is where Maslin gets the idea. Or maybe we could get on it and go up into space, and we could contact our spaceship. And he's having the conversation with the thing. And I love the. <laughs> we'll talk about it at the end, I think. But I love the conversation where he's like talking to the thing and the thing's trying to explain what space is to him and he's like couldn't we just hang on to the outside of it and he's like no <laughs> just jump off when we need to yeah <laughs> what's that, in what? space nothing yeah but also everything but not as much of everything as there, there is, is nothing. nothing yeah yeah so i thought i thought that was great but his exasperated conversation with the thing where he's just like i'll never be well prepared like i'll never be well prepared for this like well, i'm not going to wait like five more generations when i'm dead to do this like let's just do it mm. um and I kind of appreciate that. And I think that's, you know, when, when the things are stacked against you and you realize things are not right or not fair, and particularly when you feel like you can't do anything about it, um, you, you do sometimes feel paralyzed and you can't do something. But also, you know, there has to come a moment where you think, no, I'm going to do something about this. I'm going to change my life or change things for the better. Um, so, so he has that moment. And then he essentially recruits some... Um... Angelo and Gerda, so the abbot and Angelo, who was the gnome who went out of the store first. He's like the most adventurous of the gnomes mm. who have basically been having this religion is real, religion is not real argument for the book so far, even though neither of them are fully convinced of their own side. And then they sort of three as an odd triplet decide to go off to the airport and get started on this separate adventure. Yeah. I mean, I think Angelo made sense to me because he was the one who knew the most about driving the car and so they kind of feel like they need him if they're going to drive a plane as they mm. put it but i did i did feel like the i wasn't convinced that taking um uh taking uh the abbot's a bad idea but he abbot. had to clear the way so that the the terrible religious guy could try and take his place yeah that was purely for plot i think uh so they they head off and say all goodbye. in a flap uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Although, because they live near the airport, every time they talked about how close the airport was, it just made me think of the castle. Yeah. <laughs> I have not seen the castle. What? You, you realize they're going to take away your Australian passport now? You know, it is actually, I do have to renew that. So um, <laughs> maybe we'll put this episode out after I renewed it. You got you to gotta watch it first. Uh, I know enough quotes that I can fake it in conversations. <laughs> and that's the most important thing. Yeah. Oh, look, it is it is it is a great film. I think, I think I'm overstating it a little. Maybe. I had to choose. I had a friend come from the States recently and I had to choose an Australian movie to show her. And uh, I went for murals. Yeah, yeah, that's the correct choice always. Yeah, I mean, yeah. How do you choose between those two, really? But it's it, well, well, one's terrible, <laughs> and one I can't talk about because I haven't seen it. Yeah, okay, fair <laughs> enough. Uh, just after that is when we, as the readers, meet Jacob for the first time, and it's quite weird because that's like chapter six uh, when Dorcas decides he's going to go and have a look, but then. Nothing happens with Jacob for like and, most of the rest of the book. And Jacob isn't really described 
well mm. so you have no clue really what this monster is mm. um and it's only sort of for me the cover of the edition that i have kind of gives a lot away yeah that's um, the original josh kirby cover with the gnomes on jacob uh so yeah uh i i had a slight inkling as to what the dragon would be the dragon-like creature um but it didn't really clarify in my head until later yeah yeah, I think I just wrote a note because I, I got all excited that Jacob was going to show up and then I've just written, do not enter the dragon because there's a sign on the, way, the bit where the dragon is living that says do not enter. Um, I don't know. But, yeah. I thought that Bruce was... Lee must be informed. <laughs> yeah. Wait a second. <laughs> yeah, and then that, Dorcas and Grimmer have, have a nice chat about what's going on and uh, a nice chat. They have a serious conversation about it because it's clearly things are are not, they can tell that things are maybe not going to go well. Leadership spells. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And for international um, uh, listeners, Listen. oh, they're yeah. not kind of going to understand what a leadership spell is. But if you're Australian, you've got a pretty good idea what a spill is. Yeah. I think so- they updated the Wikipedia page to say that our national sport was the leadership spill. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because we changed prime minister so often in the last sort of five years, is it? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Isn't it like... We've had like, 10 different prime ministers. I mean, some of them have been the same one more than once, but yeah. it's like 10 in five years or something. If you're ridiculous. interested, um, I wrote an article about it and you can look it up. So oh, We will uh, link to it yeah. in the show notes. I also wrote a blog post about it once explaining to people what this, the spill was. We so will, I have such literature available to you. We will link to that in the show notes as well. I mean, the short version, international listeners, is that under our political system, the prime minister is not an individually elected role, but is instead... A, the um, elected, internally elected head of the party who wins the uh, general election that has the most seats uh, in parliament. And so at any point, if they decide they don't like their leader, they can hold uh, the meeting where they all vote on who they think the leader of the party should be. And... Or initiate a vote of no confidence in oh, their yeah. present leader. Mm, which forces a vote. Um, and that means that the prime minister might change without us. You know, and if you're looking for a good election. time. And it does, but often. It does. If you're looking for a good time, look up Friends for Stability. Um, That's quite a a good read about a WhatsApp thread that helped um, cement our new Prime Minister as well. Oh, wow. Mm. Okay, that sounds great. We'll link to that in the show notes as well. (laughs) Basically, if you want to know about leadership spills, uh, Pratchett's just become your one-stop shop. (laughs) Just picture a Hydra and just go from there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, um, But we do. There is a spill in the quarry, Mm. which sounds more serious than it is. (laughs) Actually, there's multiple spills in the quarry of different natures. Mm, true. Mm. 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 <laughs> I do like the idea that they, they're worried that some of the gnomes have gone a bit mad because they've had too much fresh air because <laughs> they're outside. And because someone says that about um, Nisodemus at one point, I think. Um, Another thing that they say about Nisodemus, which I found quite interesting, was his heart's in the right place. Someone else said, what about his head? Mm. When you're thinking about matters of faith is a pretty interesting kind of concept. Yeah. And for context, Nisodemus, Nisodemus is the second in charge to the abbot and he becomes in charge of the sort of faith side of things. The what, religious leader. Yeah, in the absence of Gerder, um, which is a truck part I found out, um, interestingly. Oh, well, it's also a thing used in construction. Yeah, hmm. so it's, he, he holds things in place. He goes away. This new one springs up. He's not supposed to be in charge. Dorcas is supposed to be in charge, but because he's more of a doer than a leader... It just eventually, he sort of fades to the he's, background. He's a tinkerer. Mm. He wants to be alone, tinkering with stuff. Yeah. Hanging out with Jacob. 
Mm. He's never... Oiling things. Mm. He's the sort of person who, who is quite a good leader but only does it when necessary because, uh, you know, he sort of gets everyone organised to, to make the truck driving happen. And in this book, you know, he, he has similar moments with, you know, with the with the truck that they sabotage and also when they eventually drive Jacob. But he, he really only wants to be in charge when it's necessary because he's the one who's the best for the job. And he's also getting that thing where he's like, oh, I'm a bit too old for this. Like he's starting to feel like an old gnome. Don't mm. they say that the best people to be in power are the ones who don't really want to be in power? Mm. Yeah, so it should have been it should have been him all along. Although I don't think Grimmer really wants to be in power. She needs time to get good leadership skills, though. And but and- it is nice that she does get to have a position of power because it's probably mm. quite uh, a uh, foreign concept to them just to have a woman in power. And it's nice that she gets a chance, mm. and she does good with it. And she takes real. She yeah. does. She does a really good job and proves herself really capable. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. But Nicodemus has some terrible ideas, um, even though he convinces the gnomes that his ideas are the ones to go with. And uh, I love their plan, like when they put the, the sign up that says the quarry's going to reopen and they think the humans are going to come back. So they make their own signs and put them up and they think that'll stop the humans coming in. Humans always obey signs. Mm-hmm. And then there's that horrendous, like, there's that moment where it's like, he disobeyed the signs. <laughs> this is outrageous. Um, even though in the previous book, like they, they mentioned like that they're all really confused about how humans disobey the signs all the time. Well, they, they, not all humans are carrying a pushcart or a, or a dog. Yeah. And they the, should be. And they should be because the sign says so. That's right. On the upscalators. Do you think it might've worked if they're just on one sign in really good handwriting though? Cause they put up a lot of signs and so the guy like discards all of them with the bloody kids. Full of misspelling. <laughs> yeah. Hilarious misspelling. I really enjoyed the out of order one being out of order, like literally the O and the (laughs) F. Yeah, Yeah, that was cute. Yeah, I like that as well. Mm. Um, But it's all going, it's all not going very well. Um, And uh, when the humans are coming back to the quarry, and this is where Grimmer really starts to come into her own. She's like, nah, not having this. And um, I just love, I love her in this part. Of, well, I love her in the whole book. She's great. But this is where she really just gets fired up. It's a time to shine. Yeah. Because Mr. Demas is like saying, let's build a new store, but not literally in our minds. Yeah. Which mm. is confusing to me because I was initially like, oh yeah, he wants to build a new store. Like that's weird, but. Well, basically <laughs> he wants to keep them in the status quo. He wants to keep them boxed up. Um keep everything the same as it as it was in the store regardless of their new circumstances um it's really backwards kind of a view and it is um sort of like a blindness um building a new store in their minds and their hearts and he stops the watches so like he's just basically making them more and more insular as well and more vulnerable Mm. yeah yeah absolutely and i mean it's it's that idea that acknowledging outside change but refusing to let that affect your internal view or internal world. My favourite line of Nicodemus's is uh, Docker says, uh, nature. Nicodemus says, that's right, it's not natural. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like they just, and I love they never connect the words together. Yeah, mm. it's great. But basically it becomes a war between the humans who want to reoccupy the site and the gnomes who keep trying to sabotage them. Quietly Nicodemus is saying that he's sabotaging them, but the actual saboteurs are Dorcas and Grimmer who eventually end up sort of laying out nails to try and flatten the tires of the lorry that comes. And they both are working with different motives as well because Grimmer thinks they're just trying to like take down the lorry, whereas someone else, like Dorcas, is trying to reawaken Jacob, but he doesn't want anyone else to know about his secret at this point. 
And it's interesting when that succeeds, Nicodemus claims credit for it. He's like, I prayed to Arnold Brothers and look how they flattened it. And then Grimmer actually challenges him and says, no, that was the nails. And that's where it all sort of comes to a head. It was us Hmm. as a collective. It was gnomes. It wasn't some great deity in the sky or... Arnold Brothers. I was surprised that he didn't say Arnold Brothers got you to do it because that's like the way around it, right? Mm. Yeah. Mm. I also quite like how later in the book they they flip that back around when they capture the human because there's the woman who, you know, one of the known women wants to torture them Mm. uh, and they come up with these horrible things. in the soft parts. And she's just like, okay, well, off you go. And she's like, oh, no, I didn't mean me. I meant kind of us. Us. And she's like, well, us is you and me and we're all all us. I have a question from that though. Mm. So... All the books are from the store, this department store, mm. Arnold Brothers. Why does a department store have a copy of the Geneva Convention? Well, I assumed that it <laughs> doesn't have the actual convention, like, but they maybe have an encyclopedia that describes it and some of the important parts or of it. Or a book that mentions it and it's ba- in its vague concepts. Could be fiction. We know that they have some fiction with them. Fine. So. But I was like, it said that she read the Geneva Convention. I'm like, that's a strange thing to pick up when you're getting a new pair of stockings and perhaps like a Christmas pudding and a Geneva Convention. Yeah. Oh, well, you know, they would have had a school books area. So there might have been a history book that they, they picked up that might mention it or a political textbook of some sort. Um, yeah. The Illustrated Geneva Convention. <laughs> I want to. I want to know if there is such a thing. That would be amazing. And if there isn't, maybe there could be. Yeah, maybe that's that's a project for mm-hmm. us. I want to know how long the Geneva Convention is. Like, it must be a pretty long document. It covers a lot of stuff. I imagine a hefty tome, but I have to confess, I've never thought never about thought it. about it. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. it could be a pamphlet, as far as I know. Could just be a small list. Yeah, but with don't like... do this. Don't do that. But with ten volumes of appendices, mm. I guess I was mm. lots I was, of footnotes. Mm. Yeah. I was assumed it was like it was like any sort of law where you know you you only ever read it when you need to reference it. So you never read the whole thing from start to finish. You just sort of look it up and go, well, what does it say about blah blah blah? I, I don't know. Like someone has to read the whole thing so that it doesn't contradict itself. Surely, I guess so. That's a big job. Yeah. Or a small job, depending on if it's a pamphlet or a tome. <laughs> <laughs> true, true. Phone in to let us know. No. <laughs> um, but I do. I love the sabotage part of the book. I also I like when Dorcas sort of finds his purpose and he realizes, you know, because he's, he's sort of been talking to Grimmer about all this stuff. He goes off and sits with Jacob for a while and then goes, "Wait a minute, I could fix. I can fix you. You could run again, maybe." And he has his like moment, and then they do the sabotage um, and uh, stop the truck with the nails um but after the humans leave because they can't drive the truck away because it's got flat tires they have a look inside yeah because they've heard stories about the 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 drivers Mm. yeah and somebody hits a handbrake and i hate that it's the woman is it is it nuti yeah well nuti's the one who's most ashamed about it but i think they maybe do it together well i think i I feel like the handbrake would be quite a hefty thing to a gnome so it's probably a bunch of them together pressing the button yeah yeah i think they feel yeah um, cause, and he's just like, don't press the knob, don't press the knob. And he's like, ah. I will um, retract my hatred. Um, yeah, but I mean, the, I liked, I like Nuti and Sacco. You don't get a lot of new characters in this book. Um, like you, I mean, there's Nicodemus and then really the only other new gnome characters are Nuti and Sacco because it's all about, um, it's all about Grimmer and Dorcas and then the gnomes as a collective, which I, I actually really liked. Like I didn't think you needed that many 
extra characters. You have like, you know, incidental ones when you need them. But yeah, Nuti and Sakai I like because they kind of represent the new generation mm. and they're just so fascinated by it and they get into the cab of the disabled lorry and they're like, this is great because like we never got to go in the cab. Look at all this stuff. And this then is they... the stuff of legend. And yeah. then they, they set off the handbrake and set off the lorry presumably to ruin the Soviet industry <laughs> because they are millennials. <laughs> or yeah. what else are we destroying? Straws. Everything. Um, to public base. transport in this book. Mm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm. But the truck goes down the lane mm-hmm. onto the railway tracks. Yeah. Which is dangerous because they signposted the railway tracks earlier about how like the gates come down presumably to keep it in because the train's trying to escape all the time. Yeah. <laughs> so it doesn't break free of its tracks and gnash and bite. And go wild on the roads. Yeah. But it, and it stops on the tracks, doesn't it? Which is like the horror thing. Oh yeah, mm. oh, it fills me with, it freaks me out. I mean, we, we, in Victoria, for non non Melbourne listeners, um, there's there's a really massive infrastructure project that's been going on for a couple of years now, and it's still going where they're removing all the level crossings so that this sort of thing can't happen. And I just keep thinking, oh, the gnomes will be safe soon in and Victoria. And you also keep thinking, how often does this happen? Mm. Yeah, but I, I think that they're actually doing it to decrease congestion. But I did go on the um, one of the lines where they have uh, taken away the level crossings and it's kind of interesting to be on an elevated train. Oh, it's nice. Up yeah. in the sky. Meanwhile, in Adelaide, we've got the O-Bahn and I didn't realise what that meant until I was in the parklands and suddenly a bus erupted out of the ground and I was like, what? Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they have these weird, they have these weird bus-only r- routes in Brisbane. As well, mm, I've been on those. Go through the the hills, and they sort of go through little tunnels and stuff, and then they they do they pop out and turn up on the freeway where you least expect it. And you're like, it's not where cool, you're supposed to be. But weird. Uh, Stay in your lane. <laughs> well, they they are staying in their lane. Yeah, um, true. But yeah, there's there's the massive destruction as the train does smash into the truck. And isn't that like a, a like a false? truth that's been spread around that a train like the train slows down a lot they talk about it screaming and all that Mm. but it doesn't take much to derail a train because you like they've taken great pains on tv and stuff to show that actually if a train hits a car stops on the tracks it's really bad for the train as well yeah whereas i spent a long time believing it just goes straight through it yeah it's interesting because it's not a thing that comes up in like films and stuff that much anymore i think the last film i remember seeing uh where that happened was super eight what the, the sort of mm-hmm. homage to Spielberg oh, yeah. monster films. And I'm like, and that film came out last year. It came out like eight years ago. Yeah. <laughs> and I and I think that one, in that one, the, the, when the train gets to, like hits something, it really does go off the rails and just like <laughs> totally gets smashed and destroyed, which is important because otherwise the, um, spoiler alert, alien trapped inside can't escape from the train. So it's, it's but it's, yeah, it's just complete destruction. Yeah, so everything off track. Yeah. It certainly did. Mm. Um, but Grimmer feels really bad about th- this whole thing, not not so much because she blames herself, but because j- not long before he gets into the cab, she and Dorcas have an argument. Because, And as he was saying to Jacob when he was having a conversation with Jacob before this all happened, he sort of feels like a he's being A one-sided conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but he fe- feels like he's... <laughs> Being very much taken for granted because he does all this work and he tries to make everybody's lives better by providing them with electricity and solving all of their technical problems and no one ever really cares about him or or thanks him. Well, one quote that I like from Dorcas is later on in the book where they smash through a fence, he expresses a desire to get out and grab some of the wire because 
you always knew where you were with wire. And (laughs) I feel like he trusts mechanics and fixing things. That's his language. That's what he trusts. That's his faith. Mm. Yeah. Because you always know where you are with wire. And he's that he's that interesting combination of very practical, but also he personifies all the technology, which I find charming as someone who's picked up the habit of referring to objects as as people <laughs> sometimes, particularly computers and things that move. We all, we all think about it that way. And cars are a really easy one because, you know, they have headlights that look a bit like eyes. Although let's not get into how the cars in cars are alive because I've seen some horrific like theories of that. My yeah. car has a name. Oh, what's your car's name? Future Bubble. Oh, how did I get that name? Just because it's it's sort of more rounded and streamlined than my old car. So mm. it's a bit like Future Bubble. <laughs> but I haven't gendered it really. My old car was gendered, mm. but um, my new car's not gendered. I think Future Bubble is agender. Mine's called Gilbert mm. um, because I scratched it very on early on having it, so it has a gill. <laughs> ah. Oh, that's good. I like that. But I, yeah. my final note that I made actually just talking about Dorcas and how he feels fitting in with everything is that Dorcas is Jacob. Like Jacob represents Dorcas's journey in this book in some ways. And I know that sounds very like English literature class from high school year 10, but that's what the listeners come here for. But it's, and I know we're jumping ahead, but I mean, this whole thing is about this book. And essentially Jacob saves them. They use Jacob to get somewhere else and he plows through all the difficulties and as soon as they've used him, they're happy to abandon him without a second thought. And the only person who thinks about that is Dorcas, who's like, well, I care. Yeah. And it's because they are kindred in a lot of ways. And like he relates to technology. He brought him back to life. And throughout this whole thread, Dorcas has been talking about feeling old, about slowing down. Jacob was like a dormant thing that he's he was brought old. back. He's old, brought back to life mm. through love and care. And so it's like a sad sort of parallel yeah it's it's him it's just touching that last scene yeah mm. we'll, we'll we'll get up to that though we'll, we'll do a big group cry it'll be great i think <laughs> i think we will mm. um but look after the destruction of of the lorry on the train tracks um that's when the humans are really like oh we're not okay with this and they turn up in the quarry the flashing lights mm. yeah the flashing lights uh and nicodemus by this stage has gone full like full cult leader full cult leader yeah. Like yeah. he believe he's drunk his own Kool Aid. Mm-hmm. Like, and that's the thing is he's not he's an interesting villain in as much as he's he's his own victim as well. He's one of those. He's like a, he's like a, you know like a psychic medium who believes that they really are psychic. He's, Everyone- he's turned Arnold Brothers into like from a benevolent kind of god who grants them things to like an angry and smiting god, um, mm. which is a way that cult leaders and religion is used to control people which i found really interesting yeah like he's gone old testament which is interesting because there wasn't really a testament to begin with yeah it's not really i mean i think there is a reference to the book of gnome being an actual thing for the gnomes in truckers but um you know and this book still has those little excerpts from the book of gnome at the start of each chapter they're so good I i still just love the chapter titles like there's this one that's called Strange Frogs. <laughs> like I just I just love that so much. But um, yeah, there's uh, I I don't know if it really exists as a thing that gnomes have read at this stage in the gnomes timeline. It's it's pretty clearly something that gets written about this stage mm. after all these adventures have concluded, and so it's really weird. Like yeah, to see him going Old Testament and and he's become like you know the sort of evangelical 
crazy. And he he gets that blind faith where he's like, if you believe, no harm will come to you. And we all know that in the end, for him, it doesn't turn out to be true. Well, do we know that? Or did his faith rescue him and spirit him away? Or did he, there's the other option that they said where he was embarrassed and he just clung onto the car and just living a quiet life out hermiting in the in the somewhere. Yeah. Well, I do. I, I, I think he got squished. I, no, I definitely think he got squished. Oh, yeah, he got squished. He and got squished I, so good. I, I really like the way that it's written about what the gnomes think of him afterwards that's just such a nice passage and and that they all some of them stand with him for a little bit but then they're like oh, and there's that bit where there's the bird's eye view of the quarry and it's like you would have seen a whole bunch of tiny little dots standing in front of this car and then they all scatter except for one and you're like yeah that's the crazy one <laughs> and this is also where you see Grimmer learning some better leadership skills having followed her conversation with Dorcas about being more polite to people mm. because people go, oh, what should we do? And Sadimus is telling us to stand in her faith. She's like, well, I know that I can't stop the car, but I don't know what y- you might be able to. You have to decide for yourself. Yeah, that was great. I liked that a lot. Yeah. But then, you know, the humans are there and they go all over the quarry and the gnomes are forced to hide. And the the humans don't just, you know, occupy the place. Um, they do things to the mm. place. Like they throw out a bunch of stuff that the gnomes had left behind and they also pull up one of the floorboards in the main quarry shed mm. and put down this weird powder, which only Grimmer recognises as rat poison. Uh, and the gnomes are about to eat it because they're starving because all their food is gone. And the gnomes' reaction to the rat poison I found really interesting because the gnomes as a whole are like kind of a bit like particularly the store gnomes are a bit like, well, we don't really know what's going on. They're lemmings. But, yeah, they are very naive. But then as soon as, like, someone tells them, oh, no, they put this stuff down and it's going to kill you all. Like, they're like, what? They poison? Like, the idea of poison is, seems, like, totally foreign to gnomes. The closest thing they have is food poisoning. Yeah. Mm. And when they fig- when they understand what it what it is, they're just so angry. And I just was like, oh, I kind of like that. That was great. And there's the ones in denial who are like, are you sure we can't eat it? Like, are you, like, are you sure? Maybe we should just eat it anyway. Yeah. yeah. And, they, they, and they can't even really do that much about it at first because not only do the, gnome, uh, the humans do all this stuff, but they leave a human in the shed overnight because they're like, well, someone's screwing with our quarry, so we've got to leave a security guard there. Those damn kids. Um, and they're, <laughs> they're hiding there. And they're like, what are we going to do? And then, you know. Um, they remember a book that they've read, yeah. as they call it, Gullible's Travels. Yeah. Oh, and this is the great moment where, like, Grimmer just realises that they're all agreeing with each other. Mm. And so instead of telling them what to do, she just goes, well, normally I wouldn't ask everyone because this would just be devolve into an argument because that's gnomish nature. But they all seem to be on of a mind. So she just goes, what do you think we should do? And they're like, tie him up. Get him. <laughs> Uh, which they do, and I just, oh, so good. I really wish they'd made, like, they made Truckers, as we discussed on the last episode about Truckers, um, they made that into a TV show, and I just I kind of want to see this because there's no direct interaction between humans and gnomes in, in Truckers. Like, they, they, they're they seen by humans uh, once. The um, One of the security guards sees them in the cab of the lorry, and um, Gerda sort of, like, wards them off with the words from, um, uh, you know, from Arnold Brothers. But... Um, this is and, and and you know gnomes have been glimpsed or evidence of gnomes has been glimpsed by humans before in even in this book but this is the first time like it's been this direct yeah, they get, close and personal yeah they get retconned into fairies and stuff because there's a line about humans don't really want to share so they sort of 
put them into a form that they can tolerate. Yeah, and, that, and I like that becomes a really strong thread through this book, like once they have that conversation that it's like, well, you know, if they find out about us, they're going to make us be like what they think we are. And I'm like, are they? Like, it's again the, the the bowls of milk again, which was in Witches Abroad. Like it's just a yeah. something in his head that that fairies drink bowls of milk. Well, that's a it's a strong part of um, fairy folklore. I mean, the idea is that you you leave things out for them so that they will do little jobs for you, and a bowl of milk is one of those things. So talking about fairy folklore, um, one time my mom left me in the library while she went to a meeting, and I was like, I'll just pick up a random book from the shelf, yeah, as, as one is wont to do, and it was about fairy folklore. And it said that there was a thing called a fairy wind, which is they an old suspicion where an old superstition where they would think you get carried away by a fairy wind, and so you have to be blessed to stop it if you see one. And I'm not sure if this was in the book or if I've conflated it later, but I was like, oh, so is that why we say bless you when someone sneezes because like you're creating a fairy wind out of your lungs and making sure your soul doesn't escape it, it could be related i mean the, the standard story Probably i've not. heard about people saying bless you is that you're supposed to when you're sneezing you're expelling a demon from your body i thought it was because if you like in the old times if you were sneezing like you get a cold and you'd probably die so they'd be like yeah bless you and it's just funny because like, there's always like those those sort of beliefs was actually the opposite because sneezing is clearing crap out of your oh. respiratory system because mm. it's like usually there's an irritation on the upper respiratory tract and your sneezing is a way of clearing it. it's like a violent burst of air to mm. just like eject the thing yeah it's kind of like what coughing is but sneezing is for the upper and coughing is for the lower yeah and i always figured the demon thing was like when they didn't understand germs they're like well we know that when you're sneezing that's your body getting rid of something that's bad for you but that you can't see anything so it must be a demon. It's a demon. <laughs> that's what, I don't know if that's As true. is our understanding of the matter. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I like that story even though it's not true. Actually, speaking of fairy folklore, though, you just reminded me of something that is very gnome-like. Uh, I, I recently found out one of the people I work with, hi, Kath, if you're listening, uh, was is telling me this story. No. She's a fairy. <laughs> no. She's got four kids and she was telling me this story that when her daughters, who are the two older kids, were very young, she created a little fairy garden in their backyard. They own a big property like way out in the outskirts of melbourne and they took photos and then they sold it millions of dollars for auction recently (laughs) no uh but what they did do was she would get this little fairy garden and she would like leave little notes and stickers and footprints and stuff do you know what that is that's lying yeah but it's lying it's lying to children which is a whole thing (laughs) acceptable this was yeah and this is great and they thought there were fairies there but then when her um sons were born who the two younger kids she was so busy with four kids and she thought her daughters were sort of old enough that they didn't really care anymore um, she just stopped doing it. Just recently, she overheard them talking about it and how when that happened, her daughters were absolutely devastated. Like they thought that they'd done something wrong and all the fairies had died or left. <laughs> and I was just like, oh, no, that's so sad. Just the Arnold Brothers stuff all over again. I know. Um, but it just does. It also reminded me that, you know, it's one of the parts of my job that I love is telling telling lies to children, basically. <laughs> but, but But telling them stories and asking them to believe in them. But, yeah, so uh, they're afraid of that that folklore ending for their story. And so, yeah, they do. They 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 tie up this human being. And they and- eat his sandwiches and, like, eat his soup in front of him. And my question here is, yeah. if that was you, if this happened to you, like you were doing your job and then suddenly you were, like, strapped to the floor and all these tiny people. Bad trip. Yeah. Bad trip. But yeah. if you were so sober, like you'd know that you're sober. <laughs> yeah. And this happens to you. Flashback. Like, yeah, I'd be like... <laughs> I don't know if I'd believe it's happening. Well, suddenly you're every character in every 80s supernatural film ever. Like there's that standard trope of 
I know this is real, but no one will believe me. Like the gremlins are coming out of the sewers, but no one will believe my story. The police won't help. You know, it's, you'd be in that position for real. It would be horrible. It would be, I mean, this is, this is the reality for people who have, you know, like a, a paranoid schizophrenic condition is that they believe these things. They have these hallucinations and these um, breaks with reality that they believe are true. And of course, no one believes them because in their case, it's not true, but but it is real for them. It's true to them. And that's what a horrible thing to happen. And this would be like that, you know. This would be like, oh, no, these tiny creatures tied me up. I would try to communicate back with the gnomes, though. Like, I would have left them a note. Mm. Mm. You know, I wouldn't be like, oh, let's get rid of them. Uh, because I, you know, but then I also wouldn't be working as a, as a security guard in a quarry, let's be honest. <laughs> like, I wouldn't be that guy. Just not suited to that kind of lifestyle. No, but, no. like... Again, like it's little details that get me with characters, and I like he had presumably homemade sandwiches and a thermos of soup, and I'm like, did he make them for himself? Does he did have like a wife lo- make loving them? partner like who prepared this for him? And I'm like, who is this man? Like, what what's he like as a person? Like, because he didn't have like a burger or like takeaway or something. He had lovingly prepared food. cheese and chutney, yeah, sandwiches. Mm. And I was just kind of like, ooh. And I remember him being described as like gnashing his teeth, and his teeth were like plates. Mm. That really stuck out to me for some reason because kind of, it kind of gave me a really concrete image. But, I mean, that's also that's the gnome's description of him mm. and they think all humans are weird and ugly. Like they talk about how, look, he's got so much hair in his nose. I'm like, yeah, well, well, it would be a lot of hair in his except, nose Except to for you. Grimmer who goes up and is like, that, he actually just looks like a big us, which is at odds with the earlier book's description. But That's true. But then as we discussed in the Truckers episode, like that description is made at the start of Truckers and then promptly ignored for all purposes ever after, including illustrations, Mm -hmm. even of the original edition of that book. So yeah, I would love to see, in fact, listeners, if you, if you are of the fan art persuasion, if you go back to the start of Truckers and read that description, I would really love to see someone illustrate a gnome based on the way Pratchett originally described them, because I think it's such an interesting weird idea and i love it when i love it when creatures don't just look like slightly different humans like mm. they don't have a weird forehead or pointy ears like they're they're actually different so yeah i'd love to see that if you if you feel like drawing that please do send it to us via social media um, i will draw one too it'll be terrible so please outdo me yeah yeah it'll be so good though this is and this is where also they talk about torch whether they should torture the human what they should do to him and um, the geneva convention thing comes in here yeah mm. And, and and Grimma has that nice thing where she imagines that, but what if we could live in harmony, you know? What if the humans could do all the, the big, heavy, hard stuff? And we could do the delicate things that require nimble fingers. Yeah, but not painting flowers. <laughs> <laughs> not doing or repairing that. shoes. They're so angry about that as well. I love well, how angry Grimma well, is Who wouldn't be? It. And again, that's her, like her, her vision of progress as well that I was talking about earlier. But it's interesting because it's such a beautiful idea and one that so easily could get abused into something so ugly, mm. which so often happens when someone has a nice idea for how things are going to go. Sorry to like Grandma Morky this. Yeah. I'm always like, oh, it's so nice. But uh, like someone like Nisodemus would be like, yeah, I'll get on board that thing. They can do all the heavy lifting and they can do all of our work and then we can just like lord it over them. Like he'd eventually turn them into an underclass. Yeah. So. Which would never work because they'd just get trodden on. Well, I mean, if literally. they found a way, like if they, yeah. But, <laughs> uh, but this is also where they get the next newspaper which has news mm. of grandson Richard 39, 39. Uh, and more specifically news of his satellite launch. And again, it's the thing that the the gnomes sort of understand, they sort of don't, and, and Grimmer reads it and she has that sort of, it rekindles her hope that, you know, Mastlin will return, that he's done the thing, because it talks about how the satellite has gone off kilter. And Mastlin's whole plan was to get on the satellite and maybe see if the thing could contact their spaceship. And now they've 
um, the newspaper reports that the launch of the satellite, it was launched successfully, but once it's out in space, it's behaving weirdly and sending weird signals. And she's like, it's masculine, he's done it. And all the other gnomes are like, let's not tell her that that's unlikely and he's probably dead. And I, and I thought that was that was a really nice moment um, for her. And it also sets up what happens, you know, a bit later in the book um, or quite soon after this. Where they find out they're all dead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they they decide, what are we going to do? And they end up leaving a note for the human, mm. which leave we don't find alone. out what it says later. Yeah, leave us alone. It says, remember, we could have killed you. Mm. And I was like, oh, that's really cold, <laughs> but also kind of. Like it's it's like it's like when you have a vigilante who refuses to kill in like you know story. It's and the pertinent information they need. Yeah, and they're like you know look I could have, or vamp- it's actually a thing in vampire fiction a lot where they want to show the nice vampire and they're always like if I could have killed you at any time but I haven't. So I'm like that's not nice. That's like just baseline human behavior. Daredevil like this whole thing with the Punisher. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but then after that, that's when Grimma has her dream, her weird prophetic dream. Mm. Do you remember that? It's yeah, a, where she's like basically seeing through the eyes of masculine. That's right. Yeah, and and she she wakes up and she's like, oh, it's not even when she wakes up; it's before she wakes up. She's like, I'm he's seeing a, what he's doing he's right alive. now, mm. and it's never. I don't think it might be addressed in Wings, but I I don't think it's ever addressed whether that's a real thing or whether it's just a coincidence. But maybe it is. I mean, maybe maybe gnomes do are sort of weirdly psychic sometimes. I, I don't know. Um, but also, you know, it's not like it's not a convention that's used in other kinds of fiction. So. Maybe yeah. it's their connection with electricity somehow and waves and something like yeah. possible. Yeah, it could be. Or it's going to be some kind of soul connection between the two of them. And I have to confess, I didn't hate this arguably love story between Masculine and Grimmer because it's not I quite. I was the, wondering yeah. if that was a thing. Yeah. Like they feel, it feels like they have some kind of connection and, and the dream just sort of enhances that idea. I mm. think, yeah. The nice thing about it is that, um, it's not like it's not really it doesn't develop in a very natural way in the first book they they're sort of the two young capable gnomes in the mm. outdoors and then they come to the store and they stick together because you know because they're together um and by the stage at the start of this book when masculine's basically asking her to marry him she says no i'm not sure i'm ready for that and it makes perfect sense but he's they're not being very romantic mm. because that's not really how they think about it as mm. outdoor gnomes you know but also, I think there's that thing where when they come to that point and then they say no, that's really the first time they've thought about what is our relationship. Mm. And so, you know, um, Grimmer's r- response to that is to say, well, I don't know. Like, don't assume. Like, quite- Well, they're both very practical mm. gnomes. I was about to say practical people. They're both very practical gnomes. Yeah. Um, gnomes are people too. They are. Yeah, and they're given the opportunity to not. Like, there's not just an inevitability about them ending up yeah. together, which is why I, I – I ship this more than other mm. things. Like, I wouldn't say I, I want it to happen definitely, but I'm not like indifferent towards it. Like I am in a lot of the relationships in other Pratchett books because it's just the man and the woman are there and they will be together. I think I like the fact that it's them being a, apart from each other that makes them realize how much, you know, what they're really feeling for each other. And I, and I think because a lot of us have had that experience in our lives where, you know, either you, you, you've broken up with someone or you, you know, you, you sort of have forced to move away from someone and that experience makes you realise how much you miss them and how much they mean to you. Oh, I have I have one of those from high school. Yeah. Uh, my my long-term high school, primary school to high school crush Wow. only realised that he liked me once I moved five hours away. Oh, no. 
which was tough. It was tough. Yeah. But um, we did we did have some nice times together after mm. that. But yeah, it was the I guess that absence makes the heart grow fonder. Um, but you know, it was, it was a it. bit of a killer for me. Mm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> Long distance is tough. Yeah, yeah. But it's I yeah I just I thought there was a, a nice truth to that, and that they both come to the they both have their own journey about realizing what the other person means. So this is this book has Grimmer's journey about that, and Wings has Masculine's journey about that as he's thinking about the things, and it, she also has that nice realization that you know we all know that Masculine didn't understand what she meant by the frogs and the bromeliad, but she realizes I didn't really understand what he was talking about when he was telling me how important it was what he needed to do. And he was right. And I should have listened to him too. Like we should listen to each other. So there's that nice thing where it's not one-sided. It is both ways. And we get to hear her whole idea and her whole journey about what it means for her. And that's echoed with the Angelo and Abbott sort of conversation earlier where they say that their argument's much better because then if because they're not listening to each other. So <laughs> <laughs> you're just saying your own thing. Yeah. And again, um with the Dorcas and Jacob one where he's like it's a one sided conversation and it's a and Dorcas says that it's a good conversation because he doesn't have to listen to the other person. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a lot of me, myself and I. Yeah. Being compromised in yeah. this, which is nice. And speaking of Dorcas, uh, this is the point in the story where, is it Sacco or Nuti? One of them turns up in Sacco. the quarry, Sacco, um, to say, we we made it out of the truck, we're alive. But Dorcas is badly injured and the others are hiding down by the laneway. We need to go and find them because it is it is winter now. It is snowing. It's nighttime. Uh, and it's nighttime. Um, and this is the point where, I can't remember who it was, um, talks about the air conditioning blowing the yeah. snow to oh, one yeah. side so Moody's dad yeah yeah so it would only make sense that they'd be on this side of the wall yeah um and then they're found in a rabbit burrow mm. yeah which actually sounds pretty cozy that does talk about the rabbits being down there and sort of staying out of their way mm. which is kind of cute they're nice about the rabbits and they're like oh it's okay the fox will go eat them that's fine and i was like excuse me <laughs> That's hey, that's nature for you. Well, um, and they say that in the like that's one of the things that Nicodemus uses. He's like, back in the store, we had meat, not this killing animals and <laughs> and yeah. eating those and calling that meat. Nature, it's not natural. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I do, I do love that because you know their idea of grass is like that fake grass you get in the deli section, and their idea of snow is like printed out um, ice uh, snowflakes. Uh, snowflakes. Yeah, it doesn't come right. from the sky. White stuff that sort of appears. It's not wet. And not it's cold. nice and sparkly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and the I, Robins. I, Robins. I, I also like the way that they re, um, Grimmer recruits the search party. She basically just shames them into doing it. And there's that line that says, like, 15 of them went, many out of sheer embarrassment. Yeah. Because Granny Morky says she's going to go when no one else wants to go. And everyone's like, well, Granny Morky's going to go. Then like, I can surely go. Oldest gnome here. Like, we should probably go. Um, yeah. And, and this is where, like, Granny Morky's not a big presence in a lot of the book, but this particular bit. It's her time to shine. Oh. Mm-hmm. Everything she says is gold. She's just like, I'm just trying to cheer people up and just making them miserable and frightened. <laughs> she goes, oh, you know, you don't, you wouldn't get robins. Owls, though. Mm. Foxes. Yeah. <laughs> I can smell a fox. Might not have been here for a while, but it might have. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but then when they're leaving the, um, they're leaving the, the burrow and they're on their way back uh, and they're getting scratched up by the thorns as they're trying to stay close to the hedge by the side of the road, um, Grimma just has that moment mm. when Granny Morky says something to her what does she say she says um 
can't it's not that it's... bad or like things can't get worse. Oh, something. yeah. No, it might never happen. That's right. Because yeah. she's mm-hmm. imagining, oh, when masculine gets back, you know, I'll do this, I'll do that. But she's looking really worried. And Granny says, don't worry, it might never happen, which she doesn't realize what she's saying is masculine might never mm-hmm. return. And Grimmer just just loses her shit. Like she just, you know, she's been holding it in so long. And there's also that really poignant moment when they're going through the thorns. Grimmer starts thinking this world is built for humans because everything is human-sized because they're going through the thorns and the thorns are really huge. Mm. And um, it's just that realisation of we do not belong here. We have a place Mm. where we do belong, but it's not here. Yeah. And she sits down and, and, you know, she just says we might as well give up and die. And this is one of my favourite moments (laughs) of the book where she says that and Dorcas is like looking at something and says to her, are you sure? <laughs> because there's a fox right there that's going to eat them. Oh. But, but she's got no time for this nonsense. She just like marches up to it and like smacks it on the nose like, none of this. Yeah. And the fox is like, oh, no, I'm going to go kill one of those nice rabbits. Yeah. Rabbits yeah. don't hit back. Yeah. yeah. It just remind, reminded me of that, you know, the, there's – I don't, know, still, I don't know if this is accurate. I'll look it up and put it in the show notes, but that people always tell you if you get the shark's coming, if you should punch it really hard in the nose and because it's not used to that, it'll get startled like, and – what the – and, and it'll run away. And I'm like, surely you just make it angry. But I don't know that sharks fight so much as they just hunt. So they're just, they just find out about the world with their teeth. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. By biting. I just, I, I really liked that bit where she's like, I'm not giving up. Screw that. And, and yeah. And as they continue on, that's where, the, as readers, we get the first glimpse of the spaceship and we know that Masklin has made it has succeeded because it's flying in, through the air looking for something in what would seem to be an impossible task how do you how does a gnome a humble gnome get into space get to florida yeah. and get into space but they've done it and that makes the prospect of reading wings really exciting mm, yeah. so like how on earth did they manage to do that and i was thinking that because they had to do it this time this way around because like this book is exciting but the other one has to be more exciting yeah mm. yeah and it's also you know it's got to get to the end uh, the thing i like about and when we do wings this will you'll you'll hear more about this listeners but i i really love the way that wings expands the sort of world of the gnomes as well because we've only ever known these gnomes who live in you know england in the countryside and in you know a department store but as we find out in wings they're not the only gnomes mm. and um, that's – I find that really – I just liked that, you know, and I always kind of slightly hoped for more gnome stories but I think I think actually the three books really do tell the story. So this one's what? like Gulliver is staying and the next one is Gnome is Where the Heart Is? <laughs> well, yes. you just talking about like British gnomes made me, made me think. There was one thing that I really liked about reading Terry Pratchett which was – it's just very British. Yeah. And it reminds me a lot of reading a lot of British fiction as a young person and a child. Just that cadence and vocab and mm. just the way they have of saying things and the subtlety, the nuance. Um, it's just so clever and very British. And I, I found it really like nostalgic and comforting. Yeah. Mm. And it's, and it's like, you know, the, the gnomes books are interesting because they are a fantasy series and they're about like these little creatures that aren't human, but it is set in our real world. Mm. And, um, I think there's some indication that the Johnny Maxwell series is set in the same world as the gnomes because they refer to some of the same places and, and things. Um, which is also great, by the way, if you enjoy, um, truckers readers, uh, I would highly recommend the Johnny Maxwell books, which we will cover as well, of course, on the podcast in due course. Uh, but yeah, I just, it's, it's rare that you get to read Pratchett writing about the real world in, even in, in a, you know, with a fantasy 
context. And I, I really enjoyed that too. It's possible why I was so thrilled to read about sandwiches. Yeah. <laughs> and thermoses. Yeah. Oh, well, look, there are sandwiches in Discworld. It's true. And some quite significant sandwiches, actually. Yeah, yeah. That starts all of life on, on the world. Yeah, it's it? like a better Prometheus. Yeah. He stole sandwiches and gave them to the world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, now, uh, they do get back to the quarry, of course, uh, after defeating the fox. They don't notice the spaceship. Or, the, or do they? I think they do notice it, but they just think it's a shooting star because that's all they can see of it at the moment. Or a plane or something. Yeah. And also they're being like humans in that what what else would they think it is? Yeah. So like Why humans see gnomes, they go, oh, well, that's rats or something. They just got to ignore it. Hmm. So you see a funny star and you're like, yeah, it's probably just a funny star. Um, but when they get back to the quarry, they have to decide what are they going to do? And the, the plan comes up about maybe they should go to this shed that people keep talking about that's on the edge of a farm nearby. Turnips. And with hmm. the turnips, yeah. And it's just... It's, so it's going to turn up at the barn? <laughs> Is that technically <laughs> the same pun as before? Look, it's, yes. I mean, there aren't too many puns you can make about turnips. Yeah. Yeah, there's just, yeah. Got to get to the root of the cause. Well, I want to turnip it in the bud <laughs> if I can. I, uh, I really didn't think you'd care at all about this. <laughs> Sorry, that was carrot all? I got it. <laughs> I got it. It's a root vegetable joke. Um, <laughs> You're on fire today. I try. Oh, this is this is list 24-7. I don't know if you've listened to previous episodes, you know. You and my partner would get along really well. He loves a good pun. Excellent. Oh, Keeping it seller real. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Caps of puns? Yeah. <laughs> I'll stop. <laughs> no, you won't. Uh, you're just branching out into just vegetables instead of root vegetables. You know, it's not quite as it's not quite as on point. The problem is I themed. can't think of enough vegetables. It's not that I can't come up with puns. I've just like hit a wall on vegetables I can think of. A salary wall? No, wait, that's not a thing. Um, a salary wall. Is I was salary? thinking cellar wall. I think that's not even cellar a door? thing. It's a cellar door. I don't know. Salary cap. I cut out my cellar stupid. door is the most beautiful word in the English language, isn't it? <laughs> No. Best word in the English language is pocket. Yes. That is a good word. It is a good word. Pocket. It's a, it's a verb and a noun. And it mm. sounds like what it is. It's onomatopoeic. Mm. Mm. Yeah. 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 You slide into that word and just feel real comfortable. We should have more pockets. Mm. Definitely. Especially in women's clothing. Yeah. More pockets for all. I Yes, absolutely. When I, I sew myself dresses, I always sew pockets into them, even if the pattern doesn't say to. You know, I read a thing recently where it was there's a lot of women's clothing that has fake pockets, but that happens with men's clothing as well. Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? And sometimes they even have the fake, like, sewn-in thing where you're like, oh, well, if I, un- I unpick that, it'll be fine, but then it's like a weird, shallow, like, centimeter yeah, pocket. Yeah, you unpick it and it's like, not really a pocket? What? Yeah, worst. Worst. There's nothing worse than a pocket that's not really a pocket. There's nothing worse than just impractical bullshit design. This is where they, they're discussing the plan. Is it turnips or what other choice do we have? And this is when Dorcas realizes he knows what he has to do. Uh, and he's been preparing. Like when they were examining the um, disabled truck, um, he Took had people take away the battery, siphoned out some of the petrol. And now he knows, well, we can use Jacob. Jacob's like, I can make Jacob work. And t- he takes Grimmer to see Jacob. There's the great bit where uh, the book says books should be written with soundtracks because Pratchett just dun, wants that. Dun, dun, dun. Dun. Yeah, just such. Yeah, just great. It's such a good moment. Mm. Da, and, da, da. Yeah. <laughs> now I'm getting. Now I'm thinking of. Oh, what's that? Is it from this island Earth? It was like. Da, 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 and it just keeps going. It's just. <laughs> yeah. Although it also makes me think. One of my favorite soundtrack moments of all time is in. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy film, which I actually loved. I, I know it's controversial among Adam's fans, but I, I, I actually loved a lot of it. And one of my favorite bits is when the Vogon constructor fleet is in space um, above the planet Earth and they're about to destroy the world. Um, 
it zooms out from the earth so you can see all of the ships and that it just goes dun, 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 and it just keeps going like that music and getting increasingly building, more frenetic building. for like an unfeasibly long amount of time. And it's just a genius piece of soundtrack work. I think it's Joby Talbot who did the soundtrack to that film. And it's just, oh, because I love it when music is funny, you know, mm. and I think all the music I was imagining in my head while I was reading Diggers was similarly like epic and important, but also making jokes just with the music. And I think that's such an underrated thing when someone can make a musical joke that's not about uh, it's not about lyrics uh, and wordplay. It's about the music itself. I have two things. So our Douglas Adams fans called the Adams Family. And two, my favorite musical joke is in The Emperor's New Groove. I don't know if you've seen it, but yeah, it's, it's great. It's fantastic. It's highly underrated. Like not enough people have seen it and it is fantastic. It holds up really well. But there's a great thing where there's like the villain's henchman who's like this kind of lovable buff dude. Kronk, isn't he? Kronk, I think. Kronk, yeah. He's like doing a task for Yzma, the evil villainess, and he's sneaking along, but he's this big bulking man and he's like pretending to hide behind things, but he's giving himself his own soundtrack. <laughs> and so he's like, do 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 And someone walks past and goes, no. <laughs> like as he pauses against a wall and it's fantastic. I, I can't remember if they notice him. I think they do and sort of go, we'll just leave that be, but it's my favorite. Yeah, he is great. He's he's like the epitome of the, you know, sort of anachronistic genre aware <laughs> character, even though he's the idiot henchman. He's um, a himbo. He is. He's a himbo. And he's, he's got a heart of gold as well. Like he's the, he's the henchman as, of the evil as character. himbos but. often do. Mm. Dumb as a box of hammers, heart of gold. Yeah. He's just that, wonderful. That is him to a T. I think you would love that. Yeah, also, check it out. if anyone watches it, watch for when the potion gets thrown onto a plant in the background, that plant changes shape into a llama. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of nice little visual gags in it. Um, also, the only thing that David Spades have been in that I actually liked. <laughs> oh, and Sting also um, had an interesting thing with that movie. He was asked to do the soundtrack, um, the which he agreed to, or like a few of the songs. The ending ended in a way that had a originally had a – sort of bad message about displacing people from their homes. And he goes, I'm not going to do the music if this is the ending. And they changed it. Oh, wow. Yeah, they changed the ending because Sting was like, no, I'm going to withhold it. Sting can make a difference. Good old Sting. Mm. <laughs> That's good. I'm glad, he, I'm glad he did that. He was policing things properly. <laughs> We're going to put that in the show notes. Not the pun. You heard the pun already. We're going to put some some reference to that in the show notes. It'll be great. So, yeah, so he reveals Jacob to Grimmer. And the plan is they're going to use Jacob to get out of here, just like they used the lorry to get out of the store. But Jacob is sort of simultaneously simpler and more complicated to drive because it's got lots of extra levers, but they're mostly for his mouth. And I love the way Dorcas constantly refers to Jacob as a he and as a living creature and as a dragon, you know, like I just, I'm like, yes, this is awesome because it's him. I know. And he's been sleeping there. And I should say that he's called Jacob because he's a JCB model of um of Digger. And he's got JCB written in big letters on the front. And I and I love that detail because there's a song called JCB, which is it gets me right in the feels. It's all about like a little kid singing about how his dad drives a JCB and like looks after him and takes him for a ride on it and how much he loves his dad. It's such a good song. Um and yeah, so I have all these like sort of positive connotations with the JCB, both from that song and also from this book. And I'm sure if I ever get to drive one in real life, I will just be like, this is the greatest day of my life. While crying. While crying. Yeah, mm-hmm. like, yeah it'll be amazing. Um, it won't happen. But, I, but you know, you never know. It could happen. Yeah. 
Um, but yeah, so they they fire it up, they drive out of there, and 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 who's driving? Who's in charge of driving it? Uh, well, technically, Grimmer's kind of in charge. Yeah, she is in charge. Yeah, yeah. well, she is in charge. There's no kind of about it. But there is that interesting discussion where she's not sure if Dorcas really knows. She's not sure if Dorcas really needs her help or whether she's he's just giving her something to do. Uh, and there's that nice bit where he says, what does he say? He says, oh, I know how to do it. It's just that I don't know what to do. Hmm. So he gives her the instruction manual because she's really good at reading to say, can you figure it out? Um, and, yeah, I liked that. And then she's put in charge of directing everything because they're like the young men might just go for a joyride. Mm, if... And she need, they need the gentle touch. Mm, yeah. So, which... Does not pan out. No. Also, a bit <laughs> more condescending. Fast. More fast. And lots more right. <laughs> yeah. And a lot more smashing things. Um, the, other, the other things, though, when they reveal that Jacob to, to the gnomes and they all start running away, there's that nice line where they, they tell them it's, 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 it's fine and they all eventually stop. And there's a great line that says, You always feel foolish running away from something that isn't chasing you, <laughs> which I thought was great. Um, and then Granny reveals she's seen one before or she's heard of them before. Mm. Yeah, her father had seen them building the road and that's when they're like, roads are built. Yeah. Roads don't aren't just naturally occurring. And Grimmer has that thing like, Granny, you've got an epic history that I know nothing about. Why have I not talked to you more about all of your incredible adventures and things you've seen? And it's kind of like that story that old Torrit tells in Truckers where he's seen a garden gnome in a house, in mm. the garden of a house before. And you're like, wow, that's weird. Um and and yeah, you never find out what their backstory is. Mm. Uh, I'm sure there's been someone must have written some like Torrent and Granny fan fiction about their <laughs> adventures back in the day. But That'd have, be cool. You got like older people in your life who will just drop something amazing casually in conversation and move on, and as though like it's nothing. And you're like, hang on, like because my dad witnessed the Battle of Britain overhead. What? And he'd just be like, oh yeah, what? and that. And when I saw that, and then like move on, I'm like, excuse me. Hold on. Yeah. Hold like, the phone. What do you mean the Battle of Britain? Yeah. <laughs> so like, that's amazing. And I've had that happen so many times. People just like breeze past in part of a sentence, something amazing, and then just move right on. Mm, yeah. So that's kind of what it felt like with her. She's like, oh yeah, I know all this stuff. And anyway, let's talk about rabbits and bananas. I'm like, no. Hang on. Yeah. Side book. I did. I did like that. Um, now, meanwhile, while they're getting ready to drive Jack about, the human in the quarry uh, breaks free of his restraints and calls up for help. Um, and it's I quite liked that they describe it as like he did something that no gnome would have expected a human to do. Like he sort of throws himself off the chair in order to like wriggle out of his bonds. And I'm like, why wouldn't they think they do that? Because well, they think they're slow and stupid. Mm. They don't understand that they're you know as smart as gnomes are. They're just a lot slower. And uh, it really reminded me about the way people used to think about dinosaurs. Mm. Uh, how they thought that they were dumb and slow because they were so big. Like, how could something so big and be agile? And... Yeah, and uh, this is actually a great episode of Ninety Nine Percent Invisible, a podcast I am referencing constantly on this show. But a recent one was about how how dinosaurs were drawn heavily influenced the way people thought about them. Um, and, of course, they always used to draw them standing still or when they were walking, like dragging their tails on the ground, and that made people think, oh, they're not very agile or fast or, you know, smart. Uh, and when they started to think about them differently, that was important that they got drawn differently. But, and now we know they have feathers. Mm, ah. Yeah, that's awesome. Not a burden? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Um, and yeah, and it's and then it's time to drive Jacob out of the the shed. No need to open the gate, Jacob. 
will make his own door. Mm. Yeah, I like that when Dorcas is like, the door, the door, we didn't open the door, which is exactly what he says during the escape from the store. <laughs> uh, but this time she's like, we don't need to open the door. It's Jacob. Jacob's got teeth. <laughs> yeah, mm. and they don't. Yeah. And this uh, is an interesting progression on Grimmer's views on violence towards humans because, like, she kind of gets caught up in the in the power and the and the whole anger of things because she's very she's very up for running people over if like she doesn't but like she's up for it if yeah. needs be mm. she's like she'll do, to, she'll go there mm. you don't you try to poison our children you're you're forcing us out of our home and she says specifically it would feel good like it's not she wants to it's because it would it'd feel good yeah and when they smash the truck on the way out. Um, quite deliberately, uh, she's like, that's for Nizodemus. And <laughs> didn't even like him. <laughs> and Dorcas has that thing where he's like, oh, you're breaking things and I love things. And she's like, but yeah, they hurt gnomes. He's like, it's easy to make gnomes. You just need gnomes for that. Yeah, yeah. You have to, <laughs> someone, someone put a lot of time and effort into making that. Um, which is an interesting uh, comment on how much time and effort you think it takes to make tiny babies, Dorcas. Uh, there's quite a bit of investment to that, I would have thought as well. But uh, it does seem like gnome children grow up pretty quick. Like mm. they they become independent fairly early on, which makes sense. Cause Imagine the gestation time would be quite quick. Probably like rats. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. Because he because he describes it as you're killing a truck, and he doesn't like it. Um, and I also like the way it's described that after they've busted it and it fallen over, um, he describes that it burst into flames in a workmanlike way, <laughs> it didn't, not like in a Hollywood way, but in a very sort of. Oh, I guess we'll... Well, when I first read that, I read it as a, a woman-like way and I was like, how does a woman burst into flames? Like, how would she? How would it be womanly? Oh, but then mm. I reread it and I was like, oh, in a practical kind of a way. Gotcha. Okay. But now I'm going to be thinking about how would a woman burst, burst into flames. in a womanly way. Yeah. I don't know. Is it kind of like feminine wiles? Like, mm. It depends on if it's like a sexy sci-fi woman like, <laughs> with like a fire bra. <laughs> like, it depends on what kind of womanly we're talking about. Like, it's the perception of it or like in a... Like the perception that we're more kind efficient, of, kind of like, objectified kind of fire, yeah. like well, a Princess Leia slave outfit, yeah, fire, or maybe uh, Katniss when she's being presented yeah, I was thinking at the start of, of the Hunger yeah. Games, and she's got the outfit that like bursts into flame and then transforms, which was very cool. And it depends on what your your ultimate goal with the flames is, yeah, like to survive it or or just to just to have a. Like hot time. Go efficiently because, like, is it like how you go for a caramello? You bite its head off so, like, you put it out of its Misery. pain early on, yeah. like, so then you can enjoy the rest of it slowly. Yeah, or do you bite its arms and legs off? Says you. <laughs> oh, no. Do you eat caramellos the other way? I just shove them in my mouth. <laughs> Done. Well, that's quick. I don't mess around. No, I carefully decapitate them. Mm. Surgical. Yeah, and then you can decide on the speed to which you eat the rest of the caramel. Well, I'm one body. of those people who crunches up hard lollies. I do that too, though. Yeah, so I have no patience. I'm like, let's get this shit over and done with right now. Okay. Crunch, 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 crunch. I don't care if I break my teeth. Get this sugar into me. I think you tell a lot about children about how they eat tiny teddies. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, is this the new marshmallow test? Here's the thing. I don't like tiny teddies. No, they're bad. They're, they're not That's great. why they're teddy-shaped, to like trick you into being like, these are good. They're not. Well, they're, you know, they're fine. There's there's lots of them. That's the benefit because they're mm. tiny. There's there's loads of them, so it feels like you're getting lots. That is true. And they can mix up the flavors. Because I like when you get the chocolate Not quality, quantity. Yeah. And the most bang for your buck is hungry. Yeah. They've got names. Oh, really? Yeah. So it's like hungry and cheeky and silly and. Yeah. I didn't know oh. that. Happy? I don't like That's dwarves. When, when did they do that? I They've always had that. Like on the back okay. of the box, they list out which ones are which. And oh. then and then as all children do, you grab a handful of tiny teddies out and you put them on the table and you flip them all the right way up and then you position them on top of 
the ones on the back of the box so that you have one of each kind. Blindly shove them in my face. (laughs) Yeah, like in handfuls. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Uh, They kill the truck. It bursts into flames in a workmanlike way and there's just more cops, more cars with flashing lights Mm, coming. They have them on either side and they're kind of out of options. They've by this stage gotten out of the quarry. They've gone down the lane. They've turned off and gone over a field. There's that great moment where they go over the top of the field. And And there's so much sky above them and they're the highest thing around for miles. And Dorcas is freaking out because he's like, I can't see anything. It's just like there's sky everywhere. And she's like, just remember it's Jacob. Jacob can't fly. You know that you're safe. Uh, they're not really safe, though, because they end up on the road with, as you say, cops in front of them, cops behind them. They can see what the barn, but you can't go there. Yeah. Fuck the police. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, there's very much their attitude, which seems fair because the police are not going to treat them well, I, I dare say. Um, but then suddenly it goes dark. It's mm. all it's nighttime. They're like, but we haven't been out here long enough for it to be nighttime. Mm. And they look up and there's something in the sky above them casting a shadow. And it's not an ellipsis. No, no <laughs> like, it's definitely like not. Like they assume. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, it's uh, it's very definitely a spaceship. Um, and we a don't, gnome spaceship. Yeah, mm. and we don't – it's huge as well. Like it's way bigger than Jacob. And we, we don't see masculine, which I thought was quite interesting, mm. um, but a little sort of – hover pod comes down out of the spaceship onto the ground and it's got something on it and they go up to look at it and it's a flower. It's a bromeliad. Mm. With a frog in it. Oh, and-, and and it's so sweet because you know that Masculine has gone to the Amazon or wherever mm. and bought that specifically for Grimma. Yeah. Which and- is it's lovely. And it's beautifully symbolic as well because the frog – gets to experience more than it would have in its life, which is the whole thing. True, yeah. yeah. It's not just living in its flower for the whole life. It's it's getting to travel to Britain. So Grimmer is the frog and Jacob is, is Dorcas and what is everyone else? Let's like just assign them inanimate things. Well, we'll find out. I think we'll find out <laughs> in Wings. Um, but there's those two lovely moments at the end because we don't see Grimmer and a masculine meet. We don't really get Grimmer's response to the bromeliad in this book. That happens in Wings as well. Um, the ending of this book really belongs to Dorcas, which I thought was was nice. Uh, and he does that thing where, you know, everybody else has abandoned Jacob, but he's trying to tidy up Jacob and take all the little bits of string and wood off him that they've attached to so they can drive him. Um, and then he sort of has that thinking about what, what kind of frog am I? And I love that this line, like right from the end of the book, where he says, I'm the kind of frog who is interested in how flowers grew and whether you could get to other flowers if you jumped hard enough. Mm. I thought, yeah, that's so nice. Um, it's um, a beautiful yeah. sentiment. Mm. Yeah, it is. I mean, and that's that's the end of the story. You know, they they, they have to abandon their life in the quarry, uh, make a desperate escape, but they, la- they survive long enough. They survive those trials and, and terrors long enough for uh, Masculine to achieve his goal and come back for them, which I thought was really nice. And on to new adventures. Yeah. 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 Which um, we presumably don't ever find out about. <laughs> no. no. It's, just, it's done now. Too. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, and I love the idea that there's, you know, there's a third book, but the third book is the second how did book. this spaceship get here? You know, yeah. So I it just, I, there's something about that every time I, I reread these. And it has been a while, but I, I just really I enjoy that. I don't know of any other. I'm sure it's been done before. I don't know of any other trilogies where the you know the second and third parts happen simultaneously. But I I just love it as an idea. Yeah, it's it's kind of super clever, and yeah, I kind of aspire to it now. He has a good brain. Yeah. Oh, oh, 
I was, I mean, it's the one thing that obviously with this being uh, sort of my first kind of Pratchett book is just how sharp he is and just how on point and clever. Mm. He doesn't speak down, even though these are books for younger people. Um, I mean, he does simplify things, but he doesn't talk down. He presents huge concepts in a simple way um, and trusts his readers to get it. And I just, I feel that just shows a lot of respect for his audience. And I think that that's something that people who write for young adults and people who write for children need to have is respect for their audience. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And I think, I think this, this series particularly, but also all these other books for younger readers have that in spades. Mm. Yeah. And it's just very like, and I don't like to use the word, but it is a very profound book. Like it's full of really deep things that are not done to death. They're not done in a dull way. And they're not preachy, which is a difficult. They're very subtle. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and I mean, they, you know, because they've got a real crisis to deal with, so they don't have time to sit around cogitating endlessly on these issues. But they come up naturally because they're important in the context of the story. And mm. I feel like, depending on your age, you know, if you're quite young and read this, it's a crazy adventure. Mm. But as you get older, you could revisit it and look more deeply into it. Mm. Um, which is, you know, it, that's. That's a talent to be able to do that, um, to create layers in a book for young people mm. that they can slowly come to understand. Yeah. It's multiple books in one. Yeah. Mm. So we've reached the end of the story. Are there any bits or any quotes that people really remembered that they wanted to read out? Because there, there are a lot of good bits in this book. Um, I, I did like how they described Sleet as rain with bones. Mm. Mm, that was a good one. Yeah. Um, I, I liked how um, Grimmer sort of channeled a World War II quote, presumably from the book of yes. quotes that she's been reading. Oh, yeah, yeah, that was great. Here is Grimmer channeling Winston Churchill, which is, we shall fight them in the lane, we shall fight them in the gates, we shall fight them in the quarry, and we shall never surrender. Yeah, <laughs> that was great. Uh, I had one that I really liked was, um, the world was quite difficult enough without people going around and trying to make it better all the time. Yeah. That was great, yeah. It's, it's such a wonderful sentiment, so positive. Yeah, uh, when they're talking about retaliation and Dorcas says, hang on a minute, if we start fighting humans, yes, so Grimmer impatiently, they'll start fighting us, won't they? I know they're not very bright, but it'll dawn on them that something's happening and they'll fight back. Retaliation, that's called. That's right, said Grimmer, and that's why it's vitally important we retaliate right at the start. <laughs> <laughs> like, yes. Dorcas's line, I'm still very ignorant, but at least I'm ignorant about really important things. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's also some great misunderstandings about oh. what what things are, uh, what things mean. Like when, when there's, there's you know, the, this uh, no, you know, no, no admittance by order or whatever's written on the sign and they all convince that by order is a person. Order. Yeah. yeah, order said so. Look, it's written right there on the piece of well, paper. What and I really ha- like about the gnomes is they take things as a given. Um, so there's a point where I think it's the very start where somebody's going underneath the road and there are pipes under the road and they're like, oh, Badgers had done it because yeah. the badgers used it, so it must have been the badgers. Mm. And they just accept stuff sort of at face value, which is kind of cute and goes back to that sort of very literal, very kind of naive Anya-like quality that they have. Yeah. Oh, and the multi-million pound satellite. Oh, it's so heavy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that was cute. Um, I like some of the Book of Gnomes stuff as well. Oh, it's all gold. It's all gold. Uh, like the Chapter 11 one. Uh, we will come out of the woodwork. We will come out of the floor. They will wish they had never seen us. <laughs> oh, yeah. 
Yeah, go gnomes. And here to take it to a to a blue area. It's um right after he's he fails to propose to Grimmer and he's talking about how he doesn't like change, but he does like change, but he wants things to be the same. There's this line that goes, His spear was leaning in the corner. What a pathetic thing it was now. Just a bit of flint held onto the shaft with a bit of binder twine. And I was like, Is that his penis? <laughs> Is that what he's talking about? Because like in the context, and it even has the word shaft. <laughs> so like I'm like, is that on purpose or just like is a just... cheeky wink to the parents who are reading the book? Because mm. like I mean, Shakespeare was like rampant with it, but yeah, I was just like, yeah, it's a bit too many things to just be like a coincidence. Uh, yeah, look, you got to. I mean, you're writing for kids. You got you to put stuff in there for adults, but also, I mean, kids. Some kids will get that, and they'll think it's great. <laughs> But it also works on a literal level mm. as well, mm. like Be- as a sort of a, a as an allusion to how primitive he thinks his previous life was, and to how he feels um, emasculated by Grimmer's. Um, mm. Is it does she reject him at that point, or yeah. just before? Yeah, and it's also like he used to use his spear a lot in their old life when there were these defined roles, and now it's just he doesn't even hunt anymore because he's a driver, so that's like not seemly. So it's also like a a thing from his old life gathering dust and so it just all it's all very symbolic but also very very penisy. Yeah. <laughs> totally phallic. Mm-hmm. Uh my this is actually my other favourite book of gnome one I've just found is from chapter fourteen. There is nothing that can be in our way, for this is Jacob that laughs at barriers and says brum brum <laughs> I love that one too. <laughs> so good. Uh oh there's just there's so many good bits. You could probably keep going. There the and my copy at least, I mean we the first uh, book has no footnotes at all. And mine has one right on the first page, um, which is just about how gnomes live 10 times faster than humans. But so, I did the math. It's six times faster. Well, practice is 10 times. Well, maybe they live 10 times faster, but time travels at six times the rate. So, like, mm. as in time can travel different to the living, if that makes sense, like dog years. and. Oh, so their experience of time is different to how long they mm. actually live. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. So for them, 10 years is considered a long lifetime. Yeah. So, yeah. It's like they're essentially living to 60 in human years, but it feels like longer. Yeah. Yeah. And then the, the abbot in the first book would have lived to be like 100 in human years, which mm. is really bizarre and ridiculous to the outdoor gnomes because like no, nobody lives that long. That's crazy. Nobody just dies from living too long. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, which means masculine must be feeling quite middle-aged actually because he's like three years old. So if if their natural their usual lifespan no, the outside, he's in his prime. Yeah, he's in his prime. Uh, I guess so. Yeah, because yeah. it's um it's thing with me, Bob Dorcas, who's like five or no, he's seven now. He's seven, and yeah. he's so feeling he's over old, the hill. He, yeah, he's pretty old by outdoor gnome stands. Although Granny Morky, I you know what I think Granny Morky's not as potentially not quite as old as Dorcas, but has lived more of a life because mm. she's been on the outside. Did we have any questions? Got one from Sir Sarah Dudley. Anyone else a bit disappointed that they didn't do much in the way of digging? I loved Masculine offering Grimmer the plant at the end. What's your favourite romantic gesture in any Pratchett book or any book if you want to widen it out? Wow, that is that is a big... I mean, look, mm. it's hard to top the bromeliad because it is both so, as, as Dorcas mentions, literal-minded and yet also so superbly appropriate and shows he's gone to such a lot of trouble. It shows that he listens. Yeah. And, and when you have... A partner, and I'm lucky I've got one, who listens to things that you say and remembers them, unlike me, who remembers nothing and lives in a constant present like a dog. Um, it's touching. 
Yeah. And so it's touching that he listened to something that she said that she felt really strongly about and he remembered. Um, and that makes it really lovely. Yeah. How about you, Liz? Any other ones from Pratchett books? I'm not going to talk about romance, but I'm going to talk about digging because I <laughs> had forgotten a lot about this one and I was like, oh, they're going to dig like a new set of burrows in the shed, like in the crappy shed, like they've got this digging machine. So they're going to, it's called diggers, they're going to create a sort of like burrow until the people come back and they did not. There was actually not very much digging at all. No, well, the so, digging. Yes, I was disappointed. Mm. I, I, I look when I read that question, I was like, "Yeah, you got a point." But you know, also the digging is metaphorical, and there's a great passage uh, in the book that describes that. Uh, well, thought Grimmer, we tried. We really made an effort. We came to the quarry to dig in, look after ourselves, live proper lives, and we failed. Uh, and and you like that's that's the digging. I think that that maybe the title refers to um, as much as you know they have a digger. Uh, and they do refer to it as a digger. Granny Morky says it's like one of them, one of them big diggers. Uh, yeah. And there's also Nostradamus. I keep wanting to say Nostradamus. Nicodemus. Yeah. Nostradamus. He like dug his own grave in his own way mm. with the way he did things. So <laughs> and he of... literally got dug into the ground. Yeah. It's or grounded to the ground. Yeah. Mm. He did. <laughs> he did. <laughs> to the point where there was nothing left of him. So in terms of metaphorical digging, plenty. Yeah. Absolutely. In terms of literal digging, disappointingly little. Not so much. Yeah. I'm trying to think what other romantic gestures there are in in the Pratchett books. Uh, I, I don't think I can top this one. I, I really feel like this is my favourite. Uh, and the fact that I can't remember any others sort of really seems to back that up. <laughs> so, uh, listeners, if you have a favourite one, please tweet us. Remember, you can tweet us about this episode on the hashtag Pratchett13. So I think that's probably enough time for questions, unfortunately this time around because there is some exciting news that came out today. Oh yeah, I think we have to mention it. We don't we're not really a news podcast, but we're all very excited because yesterday there was a, a mysterious tweet from the official Terry Pratchett Twitter account, uh Terry and Rob, saying there's gonna be some big news tomorrow. We're like, Ooh, what's it gonna be? And it is that they have officially announced that the BBC have greenlit the watch TV series. It's gonna be eight fifty minute episodes or something like that. A little bit reimagined. So I am cautiously optimistic despite it being American. Uh, well, it's BBC America, so it'll still be made by the BBC. Mm. It's just being funded by BBC America. So the thing I'm most cautiously optimistic or maybe a little bit concerned about is the possibility of it getting Americanized. Mm. But I think it's going to depend a lot on the thing that I'm most excited about, which is the cast list. And yes. when do we get that? Because that's going to be a huge well, presumably that is going to be the next stage will be the casting. I mean, the production crew they've got on it, they've got English writer, um, they've got English producers. Uh, it sounds like, I think I think it's going to definitely be very, very English. Um, and they'll probably make it in England anyway. I think it'll be fine. Um, but yeah, I think we'll hit up the social media to see what people will have as dream casting. Yeah, we'd love to know who you think should be cast in this show. Um, we know for sure that it will have Vimes and Carrot and Angua and Cheery. I don't I don't actually remember if they mentioned Colin and Nobby in the media release, but it would be bizarre for them to make a watch show that doesn't at least have them in it as supporting characters, if not main characters. So, yeah. Because the hedgehog has a Nobby on its end, staff? I hope not. <laughs> uh, but, look, that's some exciting news. Yeah. And we, we are very excited. Um, we'll, 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 we won't, you know, obviously our main focus is still talking about the books, but... How can you not be excited about that? And and we have many more City Watch books to get through, so no doubt um, every time we do one of those we'll talk a bit about what's going on in that TV show. It's a very exciting development. Yeah, watch the space. Yeah. 
Uh, but that does bring us to the end. Marley, thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Uh, and this is not the only podcast where people can hear you because you've got a podcast of your own, don't yeah, you? Yeah. Tell I've us just, about it. I've just started it. It's called Catastropod. Um, you can find it at catastropod.com. The podcast is about the apocalypse in myth and media, though mostly media. First episode, we talk about The Stand. Uh, second episode, Mad Max Fury Road. Um, and it's myself and a different guest every time. So um, I've managed to get some really great guests. I'm yeah. absolutely going to get stuck into that yeah, this week. Sounds amazing. Do you think you'll do Good Omens at some point? Um, I'd like to. So maybe you can come on as a guest. Oh, well. That'd crossover That would be great. Yeah, yeah, definitely. We could do that. Patchett's had some great ideas about the end of the world and some great stories about it. So I think there's a lot of a lot of stuff to be talked about there. But, of course, there's way more than just Pratchett stories about the end of the world. So I, your podcast could keep going forever. Exactly. Mm. Yeah, fantastic. And that's not the only place where you can be found because, of course, you are an author. So do read um, Marley's works. I'm a I'm a massive fan of um, the Orphan Corp books, of which there's two Thank currently you. published. Yeah, and the next one's coming out early next year. Oh. The last in the series, actually. Oh wow! It'll yeah. be a trilogy, just like the Book of Gnome. Yeah. Do you have like a trilogy name for them? Like a, like a no- they're kind of just Mary Mahoney books. Um, mm. In the at, at the start, I didn't expect there to be a series, so it was just a one-off book. I always had an idea for a series in my mind, but I certainly didn't think Welcome to Orphan Corp would ever get published. It's a novella, Mm. um, but it did. And then my publisher, which is Seizure, um, was lovely enough to allow me to write the rest of the series, which has been really exciting. So Mm. take a look. Welcome to Orphan Corp, Cyanode, and the third book um, title is not yet released, but it will be coming out early next year. So exciting. Um, but the other place people can find you is somewhere where they can also find you, Liz. You've mm. both been published in the same book. Yeah, it's an anthology called Best Summer Stories. It's come out through Black Ink. Mm. I think we're very close to each other in the book as well, so yeah. that's very exciting. Yeah. Um, what's the name of your story? It's called Naming Riots. And um, basically it's kind of a very not summary fun story. It's quite bleak uh, about and it features quite a strong showing of tree strangling. My story in Best Summer Stories is called The Walking Thing. It's a reprint and it's a story not necessarily about the end of the world but about a plague in a small town. Wow. So we've got some fun things. It's also kind of a little bleak. (laughs) For that kind of summer. Yeah, exactly. Well, in mine there's a bushfire, so, Hmm. you know, summertime. Summertime in Australia. (laughs) Yeah, where, where, you know, not only the animals but nature itself could kill you at any Mm, moment. mm. Yeah. Uh, but look, that, that does bring us to the end, but there's one important thing we need to tell you, which is what book we're going to be reading for next time. And this this is a big one. Don't Why are you sighing, Liz? I know, you know why I'm sighing. I know, but you know, we, we did say we'd do all the books. Okay? Yeah, but I was hoping you'd forget. No, I would <laughs> never forget. Just because we didn't start at the start does not mean we are not going back to the start. And yes, that's right, next month. On the 24th of November. I will be taking time off. No, it is the 35th anniversary of the publication of the very first Discworld novel. That's right. It's 35 years in 2018 since the publication of The Colour of Magic. So that's what we're going to be doing for our December episode. Joel Martin is going to be joining us from the Speculate Festival and the Morning Bell podcast. And uh, we're going to get his insight as a fantasy reader on some of the stuff that it parodies. And uh, look, I, I don't know about you, Liz. I'm very excited to be going back to the start and reading about where it all began. I was in like, maybe I've come around, like I've come around a bit to Rincewind, but it could just be two hours of me crying with boredom. No, come on. I don't think so. Just, just weeping 
loudly. Oh, well, look, occasionally you know, stopping into pun and just shouting, "Spoiler! It's Octarine!" And then <laughs> moving oh, on. <laughs> hush, hush. Well, look, uh, this is if you want to ask us questions or if you have opinions or feelings uh, about the very first Discworld book, The Color of Magic, please let us know. You can use the hashtag Pratchat14 on social media to ask us questions. Um, get them in. We're not. I don't think we've quite scheduled when we're going to record it, but get them in as soon as you can um, so that we can try and answer them on the podcast. That would be great. Uh, and thank you for spreading the word, for reviewing us on iTunes or whatever uh, podcast directory you're using. Keep doing that. It really helps us spread the word about the podcast. Um, and I hope that you really enjoy yourselves. And, uh, and until we return to the Vermiliad, please just get dug into some more Terry Pratchett. You've been listening to Pratchett, the monthly Terry Pratchett book club podcast with Pratchetters Elizabeth Flux, Ben McKenzie, that's me, and guest Marley Jane Ward. Pratchett is produced and edited by me with music by David Ashton of Sample and Hold Studios. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pratchett Podcast or on the web at pratchettpodcast.com. Join the conversation for this episode using the hashtag Pratchett13. Pratt Chat is brought to you by Splendid Chaps Productions. We make entertainment for your ears, like the Doctor Who podcast Splendid Chaps and time travel comedy series Night Terrace. To find out more, visit SplendidChaps.com.